This is Magna Carta Pro Bono Radio. Reporting to you live from CGM FM 99.1, this is Magna Carta Pro Bono Radio. My name is Sarat Mustafa, and I'm here joined with my friend, Akil Shah. How's it going, man? I'm doing really well, Akil. Thanks for asking. This is technically our fourth episode? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What a journey it has been so far. Yeah. A lot of a lot of cool things we've discussed on the show, and uh, no need to stop, because like, we got plenty of episodes remaining. We oh, got we're to far the... from finished. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but how's, how's, how's school been? School has been great. We just had our first official uh, 1L moot nice. uh, on Monday uh, last week. We uh, we finished that up and uh, we presented. I think it went really well. I was really pleased with uh, the feedback we got in terms of not only oral advocacy, but um, those of you who don't know what a moot is, uh, essentially it is an opportunity for you to advocate for a, a case and you have both a uh, respondent and an appellant position. And we were the respondents, so we were representing the queen and uh, the case, again, was about a Section 2B violation with respect to the freedom of expression under the Charter. Mm-hmm. So really interesting um, case. Uh, we had to be very creative because uh, it's very hard to argue against someone's Section 2B rights um, given from the government perspective. So it was, uh, it, was a, it was a really rewarding opportunity, I think. And my partner, who um, was helping me create these arguments, we, we spent hours uh in the night just to create something that would make the judges side with our ways and mm-hmm. i think that's truly when we felt like this is when we become lawyers yeah you know like when you're sitting with that pen and paper and you're going over the case over and over again and you're rehearsing and you're reciting so uh a labor of love for sure man and i i, I definitely enjoyed my experience otherwise uh we're slowly approaching exam season mm-hmm. yeah so How we, do have, you feel we about have we have about a month a month to go roughly yeah. roughly a month yeah um and you know, I got to say, Surat, I am I am kind of officially stressed. I'm officially stressed, and I'll tell you why I'm officially stressed. Mm-hmm. It's because this is like the culmination of a year's worth of hard work, studying, dedication, lots of uh, you know final assignments coming yeah. up, and obviously final exams. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just I can't shake the feeling that if you if you don't do well in this last month, I don't, oh man, I don't know. Is this whole year just kind of a write off then? Like, is that what you, did you feel that way? I, I be, I'm being completely honest. I, I definitely share those sentiments. I think you're being a little hard on yourself, though, man. I think you're going to do extremely well. Oh, so thank you. Don't uh, put too much pressure on yourself. But definitely there is that, that stressful Yeah, for air, sure. You know, like in, in, in the space that we're in. But uh, my mentality is just taking it one day at a time. I think if you, you know, spread everything out and uh, tackle each task one day at a time, you will find that it's a lot more, it's a lot less stressful, Mm -hmm. Um, like way less stressful than just looking at it from like a bird's eye view because there is a lot of uh, stuff to be done. But hey, we chose this path. Mm -hmm. We're here in law school. We should be super grateful for the opportunity and, um, you know, we're yeah. going to do well, man. Yeah. We're going to do well. If you'd like to support us and send us your moral support, you're more than welcome <laughs> to for those of you listening in and uh, maybe give us some feedback on how to deal with uh, Stress Management yeah. 101. That'd be, that'd be really welcomed, yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of stress, uh, there there seems to be some, uh, you know, culminations of stress happening with uh, the funding issue mm-hmm. happening here right right at home uh, here yeah, at yeah, CGEM. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to touch a little bit about that. In our last episode, we spoke about this uh, with respect to the ancillary funding that CJAM receives from student tuition. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. So um, like Surratt said, we had touched on this a little bit briefly in our last episode, but we'll bring it up again just because of um, you know how important it is for CJAM. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Doug Ford's PC government has put forth uh, something called the Student Choice Initiative, and it affects universities and colleges. Um, and basically, what it aims to do is to make the uh, ancillary fees that are incorporated in every student's tuition, it's aiming to make those ancillary fees optional for students. Now, as it stands right now, a lot of those fees, or pretty much all of those fees, are mandatory as part of the tuition uh, amount that every student pays. And a lot of those ancillary fees go towards things like CJAM, things like support services, uh, extracurriculars on campus, on every campus uh, in Ontario, actually. And what it does is it kind of helps fund and sustain those kinds of programs. And with the Student Choice Initiative, it's, uh, like I said, going to make that optional for students moving forward. Um, so students will be able to opt out of, of paying for that. Um, and, you know, it is a little bit unfortunate because uh, we feel at CGEM like a lot of students um, will, take, will take that option, they'll exercise that option, which is only $5 per student, uh, by the way, per year at, uh, at the University of Windsor. So it's a very, very nominal fee. But it is really the lifeblood of CGEM. CJAM really, really depends and relies on that funding because it doesn't really get it from anywhere else. Um, like I said, only $5 per student per year. And it helps fund all the different programs on CJAM, helps uh, you know, contribute to the richness, diversity, and vibrance of, of a campus community. So it's, it's a little troubling. Uh, wouldn't you say, Surratt? I absolutely agree. You know, see, more than 15 campus radio stations, 150 staff members, and 3,500 volunteers across Ontario will be affected by these changes. That's just some numbers for you. Uh, our very own Brady Holick says, and quote, if we lose even a portion of our funding, we will lose jobs. So I think this is this is very important for us mm-hmm. to, to discuss, especially with the, the fact that we're sitting here in this space recording um, and speaking to our listeners. Um, we probably wouldn't even have the show if it wasn't no. for, uh, you know, um, the support that we get from, from, from the fees, right? Absolutely. There was a, uh, an individual, her name was um, Brittany Webster, who is um, CJAM's board of director. Uh, she found employment with Bell Media shortly after graduating last year, and she said, uh, quote, I, need, I knew I wanted to work in news, but my anxiety over going live on air was making me question if it was really the career for me. And CJM actually paved the path for her. Um, she says, through one of her one of my courses, we were given this assignment to host a half-hour live news segment with CJM. And uh, Brittany went on to host weekly half-hour shows in the following summer. CJM gave her the opportunity and the experience and the confidence to move across the country to work as a news reporter for Bell Media. Uh, CJM also gave her the references needed for her resume and encouraged her in an environment to basically get her feet wet in live broadcasting. So pivotal, pivotal, um, you know, moments here in CJM. And mm-hmm. I actually just, I found this out recently. I discovered that, you know, Joe Bowen, who is the... The voice of the Leafs. The voice of the Leafs sat mm-hmm. right here where I'm sitting, where, where we're sitting, mm-hmm. and, you know, broadcasted to the Windsor and Detroit community. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think... There's a lot of repercussion not only be behind um, taking this away, but there's a huge um, atmosphere of culture, yeah. of history, yeah. um, for future generations to to embrace opportunities in radio broadcasting. Mm-hmm. That a simple you know 
feasible five dollars of student tuition i think if it was not if it was taken away um it would not weigh the risk like it's just mm-hmm. there's just so much potential here and i sometimes i often wonder like where do these politicians get these ideas yeah. from uh, I'm all for you know reducing tuition. Hi, hello, like you know, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I pay for law. I pay yeah, for law, yeah. I pay for law school. Like I yeah, know yeah. it's a big it's a big feat, but essential services um, require funding, mm-hmm. and CGM is currently under that list. Um, and I I believe that the 10 percent you know tuition rate reduction can have other ways yeah. to incentivize and to devise different plans. So yeah, uh, I personally think it's uh it's an ongoing process, but we need to continue making proactive measures writing to our MPP. We've sure. actually started a petition yeah, here exactly, at, right yeah. here at home. So for those of our listeners who are here at uh, the University of Windsor and are members of the community, we encourage you to come by and look out for some of our volunteers and representatives on CGEM. We have forms going out that we will be presenting to our upcoming meetings uh, to show solidarity and support, and we hope to see you there. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything you said, Surat. Like I said before, a campus radio station is so important to the diversity of views, helps make the university life a lot more uh, interesting, Um, lots of really good programs that enriches kind of uh, the lives of students, very, very vibrant, very diverse. Um, And if you do have, uh, you know, the inkling to to make your voice heard, certainly speak out, Uh, write a letter to your MPP, uh, tell them to make campus radio stations an essential service, to uh, make it you know, not so students uh, would not be able to opt out of those charges. Um, and CGM, like Surat said, is uh, passing around a petition. So come by the CGM office in the CAW. Please, please fill out a form, uh, petition, take copies, have your friends sign them. It really goes a long way. And just so you know, campus radio stations have been breaking new and local artists for decades. And that's something that our colleague Brady has mentioned as well. And many independent record labels will have a much harder time getting their music heard if CGM doesn't exist. So just another number fact, we had over 50 albums a week to our new music library. So there's a lot of things that happen in here that uh, unfortunately the government doesn't see, but um, we are trying our best. Mm-hmm. And I think the good fight is on. And um, Personally, I'm right beside my fellow uh, jammers, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I hope to see some positive change. And I know Akil and I will be there. So join us if you have any feedback. Uh, you're always more than welcome to come by our studios and even call in and uh, give us more input on what you think about this. Thank you. absolute pleasure of having Joanna Denny, staff immigration lawyer at Legal Assistance Windsor, joining us here today. Joanna, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. Um, Just to kick it off, uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Okay, um, so I'm from Toronto originally. Uh, I did my uh, undergrad education at McGill in Montreal, where I focused on um, women's studies and cultural studies. 
And I think that that uh, experience kind of is where my interest in kind of social justice and uh, potentially social justice and the law came from. So uh, I went to law school at the University of Ottawa, and I worked at the clinic, the legal clinic there, um, doing criminal injuries compensation for women who'd experienced violence. And uh, I then went to uh, the Barbara Schleifer Clinic in Toronto, which is a specialty legal clinic that works with women who've experienced violence in mainly family law and immigration. Uh, I articled there, and then I came to Windsor to work at Legal Assistance of Windsor. Excellent. You mentioned uh, a plethora of different clinical experiences. What got you into uh, this sort of work, and what made you interested to pursue this path? Um, I think that, you know, during my undergrad, when I was learning about, uh, I mean, I also, I guess I should have mentioned that I, uh, I was pretty involved with the Sexual Assault Center at McGill. Um, I was a volunteer there and had a number of roles. And I learned a lot about, um, you know, various systemic, uh, like various levels of systemic oppression doing that work. It wasn't, you know, we did a lot of training. It wasn't just about sexual assault. It was about, you know, gender identity. It was about and how that intersects with um, people's ability, I think, to to access justice. Um, and uh, for, like, as one example, race, et cetera. And so I was thinking about all of those things when I was thinking about what do I want to do with my life and I wanted to find something where I could make, I, you know, it's sort of cliche, but <laughs> make a difference or, you know, contribute in some way to, to helping people who are struggling with um, those and issues. And so I thought that law school, initially I thought maybe policy work, like government work, but, um, but I, during law school, I think I maybe became a little disillusioned in some ways. And, uh, but yeah, either way, I identified the clinic as being a place just as the po- it's poverty law, right? You're working exclusively with people who are living in poverty. Um, so I identified that as being a place where I might be able to at least, yeah, assist with some of the issues that I was concerned about. Uh, okay, so I hope you're not, you weren't disillusioned enough because you're still very active in access to justice related things, obviously. Uh, we at Windsor Law are lucky enough to have you as an access to justice uh, instructor for the 1L course. Um, so just maybe broad strokes, why is access to justice something that needs to be spoken about? Why does it need to be taught? What's the importance for lawyers um, in, in kind of like a, a 25,000 foot view? What do you think? So I think that, I mean, Windsor Law has this focus on access to justice and and all first-year students have to take access to justice. I think it's important um, from my perspective, the course is, it's called access to justice, but really I think it's it has a specific focus on access to justice for marginalized communities. It's not like, you know, it's, it, it does have a specific focus. So um, I think that, you know, regardless of who you're going to be, like, I think it's really trying to expose students who may never have uh, challenged their own worldviews or their own privileges to consider other communities or other the experiences of people who have had a more difficult time throughout their lives and who may not have the privileges that they that they have 
so so I think um, yeah that's in a nutshell excellent and in terms of the, the the course itself like the one of the one of the greatest outcomes that you can have uh, is having this idea of legal consciousness social consciousness and cultural competence these are all very jargony words but as law students we completely understand uh, the the fundamental basis of what it means to be culturally competent uh, and to have this sense of legal consciousness as an instructor of the course how do you uh, framework those concepts or those doctrines to introduce them in a way that has never been introduced before to some of these students because of their backgrounds or because we're, uh, of their you know, personal educational histories? What is your approach to teach them in a way that is not a one-size-fits-all, one but in a way that is unique and that applies to the entire classroom in its own way? That's a really good question. <laughs> and I will say that I think that um, it's you know, how to present these kinds of issues is something that is an on, like, I'm also figuring out on an ongoing basis. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily have, you know, figured out what the, you know, 100% best system is. I mean, in, in currently anyways, I have tried to set some guidelines for the class. And really, it's mainly through the syllabus, presenting uh, students with readings and uh, authors who are providing evidence and arguments about the kinds of communities that we are talking about, why they, you know, have, have struggled with access to justice and what are, might be some solutions. Um, and then, you know, discussing it openly in class. Um, but, you know, I think that obviously there's you know, whether or not maybe there needs to be some more background done, maybe as opposed to throwing students into readings and, and hoping that they understand the concepts or, or identify with the concepts. I think that that's something I'm thinking about right now. Thank you. And is there enough uh, taught in law school about access to justice? Do you feel like there's something more that the school, the institutions can do? And if not, what can be done differently? That's, it's hard for me to say just because all law schools have a different approach. And I, I mean, I can speak from my experience at Ottawa Law, which also is a school that identifies itself as being quite focused on social justice. Um, I found that uh, many, I, I really loved, had a good experience there with many of the professors. And I thought that in the first year, the first year was pretty, you know, to take property, you take tort, to take criminal law, you take it. So it, it is pretty focused on black letter law, but many of the professors did throw in their own, you know, for example, property law was taught by a professor who had a particular interest in indigenous law. So focused on, you know, would sometimes bring that in as, you know, something else to think about when we're thinking about the concept of property. Um, but I would say that I think it's great that Windsor puts in this, you know, is not not only access to justice, but also indigenous legal traditions as a mandatory class, because I think in a lot of schools, those are niche kind of, you know, classes that only get taken by students who are already sort of maybe preaching to the, the converted a little bit. Um, and it's great that those are offered, but I think it's important that they be, you know, required for, for students. No, I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, in terms of your role as a staff immigration lawyer, what are some of your responsibilities at LAW? So I supervise students and represent my clients. So what that looks like is we have students from Windsor Law who have academic placements at the 
uh, clinic and uh, who also have work over the summer. Um, so students will be assigned to file work and to work with clients and they do all of their work under my supervision. So I, you know, I do like to, tr- to, to develop it so that students can be meeting with their clients on their own. Uh, they're drafting the submissions, they're doing research, but um, with my guidance and, yeah, and I review all of their work. Um, and then, um, you know, I do sometimes take kind of a closer uh, in interest. Like, I, I find it difficult to have an arm's length from clients. Um, I do I do like to get to know them myself. I don't typically have the students working with them and I, and I don't meet them. I find it important to actually get to know the clients and hear their stories directly from them as well. I find that helps me to advocate for them. But, um, but yeah, so we... We do a pretty wide variety of immigration, refugee, and citizenship matters. There's really no, we do this and we don't do this. We kind of just evaluate whatever comes in the door and whether or not it's something that we have the capacity to help with. So immigration law is a huge area. Um, I won't I won't maybe take up too much time if you don't no, want that's you know, okay. to. I, I definitely wanted to pick on a point that you just mentioned yeah. um, with respect to coming in to seek these services. How does a, an individual, an immigrant, an, an, immigrant, an immigrant at this point, um, or anyone who requires legal assistance, how do they know and how are they aware that these services one exist and what kind of um, roadmaps do they have in order to seek such, uh, such incredible services? So I think uh, sometimes definitely they're referred from other services. So they'll, you know, they'll have been connected to, say, the Multicultural Council, which is a settlement agency in Windsor, or the Newcomer Center is another. There's various agencies that, that work specifically with newcomers, um, and they may identify that there is a legal issue that they can't assist with and refer them directly to us. Um, otherwise, I uh, we also have uh, social workers at the clinic, so um, I have uh, I work pretty closely with uh, with the social workers, and they frequently are referring clients to me, like their own clients. I I will say though, I think there's probably lots of people out there who could use assistance who don't necessarily know, you know, that that there's options for them. And specifically in Windsor-Essex, on average, how many of these clients do you deal with, let's say, in the span of three months? Is it one? Is it ten? Well, oh, that's, that's so, I mean, I would, I generally have at least about 50 clients at a time. I mean, wow. fire files. I mean, that's, um, I've had more, I've had less, like it, the file number mm-hmm. fluctuates. But um, immigration law is also an area where, Something like I could have a file open for three years or more because that's, you know, the processes tend to be very, very slow. You submit an application and then you wait to hear back for a very long time. But um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, it it really depends on on my capacity if I'm taking on new clients, if I've closed some files I can take on clients. But yeah, we I mean, the other day I saw 16 people in a day. So, you know, it's it really kind of depends on the. Um, on the issues and how complex they are and, and what our capacity is. In terms of representation, we're talking about having like your, people like yourself who are going in and, and fighting the good fight for these individuals. Through the lens of access to justice and the ongoing debate of having traditional costs, of having legal representation, we all know how you know 
it's not necessarily affordable for many people. Um, how effective do you think self-litigation is? And do you find that there aren't any limitations? Or if there are, does alternative dispute resolution have a promising future? So I think that um, in my in the context that I work in, I have like a hard time, you know, I usually when clients come in, I evaluate whether or not I think is this an issue that can be dealt with by a client on their own? Is it is there somewhere I can refer them? Like, do they need legal assistance with the issue? And that's just for our own capacity. Like, I, you know, I kind of screen for those things. But um, from honestly, again, immigration law, refugee law, like they're really complicated areas of law that I think that typically there, a lawyer is really important. Mm-hmm. I and, and again, especially with my clients, there's often language barriers. If they're new to Canada, there's an unfamiliar infamiliarity with the legal system um, that I, I really think that that support. Like I, I have a hard time imagining many of my clients, um, you know, going forward without uh, a lawyer and the and the con- potential consequences to them are so severe, like deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes immigration detention is a reality. So I, I uh, yeah, I think a lawyer is important. And I will just say alternative dispute resolution is something that certainly, I mean, family law, you know, is an area where I know that mediation is, is uh is is used quite a bit or is encouraged and there's other areas of law where mediation can be used but i think that there's always a power dynamic between the parties so for example in family law when i was working at the schleifer clinic and it was all you know in the context of domestic violence mediation i in my view isn't really appropriate when there's a history of domestic violence because the abusive party in that situation, it's just another way, I think, for them to bully and to use, you know, to continue to assert their dominance. And and the party who has experienced the violence or the abuse is, is you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think, a continuation of trauma to force them to sit in a room and try to negotiate with, with the abusive party. So, um, and, then in, and then again, with immigration law or anything involving the state, there isn't really an opportunity to negotiate necessarily. Like it's like no, the you know we the law says that you are to be deported. We're going to deport you. And again, the power imbalance between the state and the person is is huge. There, they I think they really need someone on their side to to help. So, uh, so Joanna, obviously you have um, a lot of understanding of uh, sort of immigration law and um, kind of the issues and problems and things surrounding it, just in terms of contextualizing it to Windsor-Essex, like what are the prevailing kind of issues and uh, problems that maybe the county or the city has with uh, particular immigration topics, things that you see that need a lot of addressing or help? Um, like what's what's kind of the, the scenario there? So there's definitely, there's, there's probably lots of things I could mention. Um, definitely one major issue um, is that we are surrounded by, you know, yeah, Essex County and Leamington is the tomato capital of Canada, and um, all of the food and out there is is generally harvested by migrant workers who, uh, for the most part, do not have, you know, like they are certainly they do not have access to the same kinds of rights that Canadian permanent residents or citizens do. Um, so there's, um, you know, what we see with a lot of migrant workers, I would say that's definitely one population that 
can have a difficult time accessing resources like our clinic. Um, fortunately, we do have some connections, and so we do get we we do have migrant workers who approach us. But I know, I mean, based on how many there are, there's thousands. Um, there's we probably just see the tip of the iceberg in terms of issues. But migrant workers are here as temporary residents. They're uh, remaining in Canada is dependent on their uh, employment and, and their specific job, so they, they can't just leave their job and go to a new employer if they're experiencing, you know, the employer isn't treating them well or isn't paying them properly. Um, so having open work permits, you know, allowing people to move between jobs would be one thing that, you know, a lot of advocates have said would really help. And the other thing is there's no access to permanent residence for migrant workers. So they are here, some of them may be here for for decades, like, you know, just constantly renewing their work permits, but without the ability to bring their families over uh, and to actually settle in Canada. Does the LAW create any sort of social or economic conditions to help eradicate um, any kind of poverty or poverty possessions or sorry, poverty oppressions um, with these migrant workers, or is this something that's currently in the works? So uh, we are a member of the Canadian Council for Refugees, which has refugees in the title, but does actually advocacy work all th- throughout, you know, at different areas of immigration um, issues. And so CCR uh, does directly advocate with the government in terms of creating policy changes and so and we contribute to those conversations um, as an organization that's working with the migrant workers so um, that's both and I'll say it's the social workers who are at our office are also really involved in that it's not just uh, the me as the lawyer but um, there's uh, yeah and, and I mean certainly when pol- when any time you know if the government is doing a consultation or if there's a particular issue we'll write in and you know try to give our our piece based on our experiences working with clients. Excellent. I love how they have that sort of collaborative uh, point with different agencies and it seems to have um, success with everyone's uh, hands involved. So it's really good to see the community come together in such a way. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed your interview. Um, we hope you had a good time. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was, it was fun. No, this was awesome. Thank you so much. You. That was Joanna Denny, staff immigration lawyer at the Legal Assistance of Windsor. Keep it locked right here on CJMFM 99.1. We'll be right back after these messages. You've heard Stage Diving, our on-air weekly concert listings, but now CJAM is making it even easier for you to stay up to date on live music events in Windsor and Detroit. The CJAM Concert Calendar is a searchable digital calendar providing information and links about as many local music events as we can find. Check it out online at www.cjam.ca slash concert calendar. The CJAM Concert Calendar, just another way we're reaching higher ground in Windsor and Detroit. And with that, we're back on Magna Carta Pro Bono Radio on 99.1 CJAM. We're joined now with uh, Stephen Vitella, who is also part of the PBSC Pro Bono uh, Projects here at Windsor Law. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so we're just wrapping up, I guess, our first year of law school. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, What do you think? How's it been? Uh, I'm getting by, barely. Yeah. A lot of readings, I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's almost over, I guess. So uh, just have to get through this last hump, this last month, and uh, and then and then it'll be summer, and then we'll be able to 
look forward to next year, I guess. Yeah, we'll actually have a life. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Um, so, Stephen, the reason we uh, we have you here today is just because uh, we wanted to showcase your project. Obviously, everyone we have here on the show is doing a really meaningful PBSE project. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to know a little bit more about what your project is this year and have everyone kind of know the important work uh, that you're doing. So just starting off, um, what exactly is your PBSE project that you chose to, to, to do this year? So me and my partner, Natasha, we are working with the Sexual Assault Crisis Center, mm-hmm. and we're providing a plain language document for consent. So essentially, we're taking the legal concept and trying to simplify it for uh, lay people or people who are kind of curious about what it means in simpler terms. Mm-hmm. Consent uh, referring to um, like in in the terms of sexual relationships yes, and yes. Uh, you know relationships between people. Yes, um, really important work for sure. Um, so in making that plain language document, what does that entail? Like, what did you have to do exactly? So essentially, we tried to scour the uh, the case books for what was the landmark mm-hmm. kind of jurisprudence on how the parameters of consent and uh, when it can be present, what are some of the limitations. And we, uh, so we took that and we, can, we condensed it and uh, put it all together into something that would be more manageable for someone who could just glance and understand if they had any questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the documents that you, that you prepared, um, uh, I don't know if this is, a, is this is the right question, but who is it meant for? Like, is it meant for students? Is it meant for people who are just curious like or or is it available to anybody oh it's available to anybody i think it's mm-hmm. it's meant for someone who might not have the access that say we do to uh to actually go through all of these cases or have the resources to kind of uh yeah scour those case books to find these things so it's yes yeah, for mm-hmm. everyone who's interested curious has questions mm-hmm. that they'd have access to these answers right so basically anyone who maybe isn't in our position where yes. we have access to all these case cases these books and um you know we obviously have a lot more proficiency i guess at this point in in the law but it's more meant for people who aren't as fluent in the law um who are seeking to kind of have a better understanding of consent and what it means absolutely yeah exactly that's good that's good I, i i i really like to hear that um so obviously it's a really important project um hopefully it has a lot of um you know people who get to see this document um, but just kind of focusing on you, like what made you interested in this specific project? Like what's what's the passion behind it? Well, in my undergrad, I uh, volunteered with the Bringing the Bystander program here. Mm-hmm. I was a facilitator and uh, that, that was like one of, it was a really important uh, position for me. And it was, uh, yeah, that was a life changing thing. So, oh, wow. Nice. Um, I knew that when I was coming to law school, I really wanted to kind of take that experience and implement it in a way to try to... Uh, use my expertise to kind of spread, uh, spread information. And, uh, yeah. So, and, uh, I, I just think apart from that, I just, I think that it's a really critical issue today mm-hmm. that, uh, I think a lot of questions are being raised if you just look at the news or what's going on. And I mm-hmm. think that, uh, it's always helpful to, you know, to translate and to, uh, simplify, uh, just useful saying. information, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think maybe it's it's um, maybe complex for some people to understand. And, and and it's not like they don't want to understand it. I mean, I think people are very open to it. Mm. It's just maybe they don't have the resources. Um, maybe they've never thought about this in the past. Maybe they've never um, seriously considered about it. Yeah. 
or considered it, and um, and they don't know where to start, right? Absolutely, it's a vast subject that I think a mm-hmm. lot we take for granted, and we so yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I I I really like getting your perspective um, as well because you're um, a guy, <laughs> to put it a little <laughs> like you know uh, simply, yeah. um, but it's it's really good to see like um, guys kind of having an active role and having an active input and um, contributing what they can to solving the problems that may exist. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, what do you think of that? Like um, like the male kind of um, contrib- contribution, I guess, to helping this problem. Because, you know, um, I guess to put it a little bit simply again, it is really um, men who are, who are the yeah. perpetrators primarily of, you know, um, sexual assault and spousal violence and things like that. So, you know, I always hear, you know, you can't have a solution without the input of, of, of males in society because it's it's a very large problem and without their input, without their help, it's it's not possible to, to come to a, uh, a meaningful solution. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I think that that collaborative aspect is really what's going to have to, uh, what's necessary to affect any real change. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that we have a lot of preconceived notions that maybe this is a, a, a gendered issue, mm. that this is a, because it, we think that it predominantly affects women, that it's a women's issue. But no, I, I think that, uh, it's great if a lot if, uh, you know, if men get involved, mm-hmm. if they realize that uh, anyone can be a victim, anyone can advocate for these rights, anyone can advocate for these issues. Sure. And yeah. it's not, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I it, it doesn't have to be like um, one side yeah. is the, is the um, or one group of people is Absolutely. like the driver of everything. No, I mean, I think it's, like you said, it's collaborative and anyone can help. Anyone should be able to help. Yes. Um, and I think if we make that more accessible for people, like it's, it's just useful in, in, in the broad, broad, uh, scheme of things, I guess. Um, so just in talking about, about the, the, the plain language document, um, what were some things that you thought were a little bit challenging? Um, was there anything that you didn't expect? Was there something that you might, um, that you would consider, you hadn't considered before, but now you're thinking of it in a new way? So for me, I think that the biggest challenge that we had was making sure that consent, which is a relatively, I don't want to, it's not an ambiguous concept. I don't want to make it out as if there's some gray area because when it really comes down to it, yes means yes. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that the biggest concern that we had was making sure that it was clear, making sure that it was, uh, that we were able to eradicate that ambiguity, mm-hmm. that we were able to make sure that uh, that it's a concept as straightforward as it really is. I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like yeah, it's, no. yeah, we wanted to make sure that when people were able to read it, when people have uh, access to it, they're, uh, like there's no misconceptions. There's no... Yeah, exactly. There's no uh, um, gray areas, as you said. Yeah. Like it is actually quite a simple concept. It is. But for whatever reasons, people have these misperceptions or they're not they don't have the right access to these kinds of things. So I think you're right. Just making sure that you're explaining everything in a clear way. And I think it's drenched in so many cultural myths and so much kind of legal jargon that Mm -hmm. that, that's what gets lost. And I guess that the challenge is stripping all of that away and presenting uh, that core that's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with that. And the project is wrapped up now. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So now looking back on it, what do you think you liked most about it? What I liked most about it was I, well, I guess 
coming from my experience, I think that it's a really important and essential mm-hmm. uh, area and, and being able to contribute to it in some way and uh, try to impact the issue. And I know that, you know, at Windsor Law, we're kind of really concerned with uh, access to justice and mm-hmm. making sure that people have the resources that they need to, uh, you know, I think that that was probably the most fulfilling part of this was. Yeah, yeah. good, good. Yeah, yeah. So are you going to be doing this kind of work in the future? Like, is it is it part of what you want to continue to do in law school? Is it going to be part of what you do in your career? Like, is that uh, well, a would, possible trajectory? Yeah, I would like to. I, yeah. don't, I don't know how I'd be able to factor it in, but no, I absolutely. I think that it's a no, it's a really important area. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And on that note, Stephen, thank you so much for coming in today and speaking about your experiences as part of the PBSC project. I know it's um, really, really meaningful work. So really glad that we have someone and a team of people, I guess, who are working on this kind of stuff. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have the absolute pleasure of introducing our incoming guest. For those of you who remember from episode one, she was part of and is currently still a part of only Yes Means Yes, a project here at Pro Bono Students Canada. I'd like to introduce Nadia Nadim. Nadia, welcome back. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, it's amazing to have you back here in the studio again. Uh, last time we left off, we talked a little bit about your project, but just for our listeners today, would you want to go ahead and just give a little bit of an insight of what uh, only yes means yes, only yes means yes entails? Yes, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. So once again, it's the only yes means yes consent workshop, and it's run by LEAF, so which is the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. So that's a national organization, and uh, LEAF is. Uh, an organization that was founded in 1985 um, and under this umbrella uh, PBSC at Windsor uh, runs this Only Yes Means Yes workshop and yes that's what I've been working on um, with my other other members on this project and we run these workshops in the community. Excellent and what were some of the short outcomes that you had uh, from the last time we spoke to now what were some of the projects or the project that you were working on specifically? So the consent workshop is uh, it's run through LEAF is created by LEAF and what we do is we are the uh, the facilitators for the workshop and the outcome for the workshop is to provide um, education for youth with regards to their rights when it comes to sexual relations, uh, sex, sexual assault as well as sexting. Excellent and some of these projects entail obviously working with these students so we're talking high school students? Yes. So it's, Specifically? It is high school age students as okay. well as young adults so it does it does get run as well on university campuses, so with that age group as well. Awesome. So when you went into these spaces, um, how did it feel? Like, what was it like to speak to these students, and what was the reception like when you were giving them not only uh, the education portion but also the the awareness portion of the topic itself? Because it, it, it could be argued that it's pretty sensitive and, you know, people have their own views on it. So how did you approach this in terms of teaching from an empathetic point of view? So I've only run one workshop so far. Okay. Uh, but the experience was very positive. Excellent. In, in that we're given really good resources to go off of, and then we have some creativity when it comes to actually implementing the activities. But I think 
I think it's really cool the way the workshop is structured because we're uh, we're relatively young people mm-hmm. in, in in coming into the legal profession. And our goal is to facilitate a workshop on a very topical issue, which is that of uh, sexual relations and and consent specifically with a consent specific focus. So running the workshops for me, uh, I think I think it's fantastic work. I, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before in my first uh, appearance here that I was working uh, with the sexual assault center in Hamilton. Yep. And this is very reminiscent of that for me. I really like the continuity. And one of the reasons I want to pursue a legal career in general was to uh, give back to specific communities. And one of the communities close to my heart is is, uh, when it comes to survivors of sexual violence. Excellent. That is, again, super meaningful work. What what was your biggest uh, challenge this so far in terms of going and continuing on with this project? Or did you have any challenges or was it something absolutely natural for you? Um, I think I think it's been pretty natural for me. Uh, I feel like it's work I'm particularly geared towards. Okay. Um, I think because of my previous experience as well as uh, my experience in general as a woman, mm-hmm. um, as well as it's something I'm passionate about, it's something I care a lot about. Mm-hmm. So it's work that's easy for me to do and feel like I can do well and contribute positively to overall. Uh, so far, not not very many challenges. Awesome. Uh, haven't really faced any issues. I think young folks are really receptive to education on this topic because mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. themselves, like they're, they're hearing things that are happening with the Me Too movement. Yep. They need some guidance. And I think that that makes them really receptive uh, to the fact that they're living in an information age and they want to get good information. And especially when it comes to their legal rights, right? Because mm-hmm. when it comes to something as serious as uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault or sexual violence in general, it's it's unclear to know what the boundaries are when it comes to the legal framework. Right. So I think this workshop in particular uh, is fantastic because it gives young people the answers that for the questions that they have. It's super important, uh, like you mentioned, especially at such a critical time in the life of you know a high school student. I remember getting you know consent-based workshops um, in high school as well. It was more of a curriculum-based um, approach. We didn't have the opportunity to have upper-year students from law school come in and speak to us. I think there's a, a, form, a formal and an informal hybrid where you get to actually speak to them. You know, the generational gap is not as much either. You're not hearing it from someone who's, who's like, uh, you know, somewhat older than you but you know you can actually relate to these people who are speaking in front of you Um, and I think it's really important that these projects get an opportunity to have more light and more exposure what were some of your victories or some of the things that you were proud of um, from this workshop something that you may have had either on your vision board or just in terms of your overall outcomes of what you wanted to see was there anything that stood out for you in this project specifically um so far I think what's what my goal was going into it, mm-hmm. if that's what you're asking, yeah. was that I, I want for anyone who takes this workshop, especially if they take this workshop mm-hmm. with me, because I'm in that sense, I'm kind of responsible for their learning, is for them to feel like they walked out of, out of it with a clearer understanding than when they came in. So in particular, the workshop that we did run, um, there was an individual there who there was a specific question with regards to reporting that this individual had. Um, And we did refer them to SAC, which is like the sexual assault center uh, in Windsor area, I guess Essex County. Uh, We did refer the individual there. But the reason that that, uh, the question about reporting came up was because we were having this very um, structured but like casual conversation, right? It was more like an interaction 
um, and that the person felt comfortable bringing up this this topic. And uh, in doing so, they brought up this, this, this question they had about an assault they'd experienced when they were younger. Wow. And they felt like, oh, I'm not able to report. or mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that this person's going to hurt someone else. And said, actually, you are able to do that. Now, that knowledge that I had uh, came from my work with the Sexual Assault Center in Hamilton because right. I have worked with survivors before. Right. And I have given them uh, some parameters of their uh, options especially when it comes to historical sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really meaningful that this person in this space felt comfortable to bring up something that was obviously very difficult for them. And then they were able to get an answer and they walked out of there feeling that person said that they felt like really positive about that about the the fact that they could do something about how, it. How did that make you feel? That's such a liberative mo- like moment. I'm sure. It's not really about me. Okay. Um, the way I look at it, it's not about mm-hmm. me. I think I I felt really good knowing that this person came out of there with a resource that they didn't have before. And in fact, right. I referred them to SAC because I said, similar to the line that I worked on, there is a 24-hour crisis mm-hmm. support line. And I really recommended to them. I said, you're never going to be bothering the volunteers by calling. Like they are there to support you. And so giving them that resource, obviously I I could see it kind of lifted a a little bit of a weight off of them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was great that such an environment can exist where they're able to bring up something, obviously, like I said, so sensitive, so vulnerable, so traumatic in a comfortable environment and get answers from someone who knows the answer, right? Yeah. So I thought, I thought for them, um, I was, I was glad for them. And will you be working on this project or relevant projects in the future? Or do you see yourself being um, able to continue this after PBSC and in what shape and form do you plan on doing that? So like I said, I started doing this work before I got to law school. And uh, the reason I applied to work on this project was specifically because uh, I wanted the continuity in the legal context. Mm -hmm. I do envision myself I would like to work on this project uh, specifically in some capacity for the remainder of law school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would like to continue this work beyond. And in, in what capacity, I'm not sure exactly, but I know my role is centered around advocacy and education. And I'm happy to find a way that I can positively in that way. Thanks, Nadia. I really appreciate the feedback and you know, just having this honest conversation right now. It's really, really important to bring this topic home. Um, and I wish you all the best with uh, Thank you. finishing strong with your, your project here at PBSC. Just changing up the gears a little bit, um, you mentioned that earlier when we were speaking off air that there was a case, uh, a case that I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers know about uh, regarding voyeurism. Uh, this case is very close to home to you too, and you've obviously had a lot of time to reflect and bring up some important topics and issues about this. So what is this case and why are you bringing it to light here in the studio today? So I'm talking about a recent decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, R.V. Jarvis, and this case is about voyeurism specifically. So I'll run through some basic facts so that we can give people context if they haven't heard already about it. So Jarvis was a high school teacher in London, Ontario in 2015 who used a camera that was concealed inside of a pen to secretly record his female students at school. And most videos were focused on their faces, upper bodies, and the breasts of his female students who were aged between 14 to 18 years old. 
Um, he was charged with voyeurism, which is an offense. Uh, it's a, an offense when someone secretly records or observes someone in circumstances which give rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy. And then as well, when that recording or observation is done for a sexual purpose. So it's, it's kind of like a two-pronged approach to that offense. So Jarvis did admit at trial to making the recordings. Uh, so the trial judge had to then consider two things. One was, were the students recorded in circumstances that gave rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy? And two, whether the recordings were made for a sexual purpose. So at the trial, the judge found the circumstances did give rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy, but he was not satisfied that the recordings were made for a sexual purpose. As a result, because it didn't meet both the criteria for voyeurism, Jarvis is acquitted. This was appealed, and at the Court of Appeal, they found that the judge had erred in failing to find that the recordings were made for a sexual purpose, but upheld the acquittal on the basis that the students were not in a circumstance that gave them a rise to reasonable expectation of privacy. So it's kind of like reversed on those two factors. So the issue for the Supreme Court of Canada was, were the students recorded in circumstances that gave rise to a reasonable expectation of privacy? Now, we can, we, we can, we can talk a little bit uh, about what happened at the Court of Appeal uh, before I go into what the, the Supreme Court of Canada said. The Supreme Court of Canada did, in fact, agree and say that this was voyeurism and that students at school do have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But before we go into that a bit more, I want to talk about what happened at the Court of Appeal. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Why don't you tell us exactly what happened at the Court of Appeal? So at the Court of Appeal, they found that there was no reasonable expectation of privacy because of the presence of 24-hour surveillance security cameras in and around the school. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem because those security cameras, if you're if we're just taking this into context, if, if it was you as a student there, being recorded for the purposes of security is different than being recorded for the purposes of someone to objectify you or look at you in a sexual nature. I think we can agree on that. Absolutely. So this was really interesting because it brought up the issue that it brings up the issue of privacy. And we're going to see this more and more, especially when it comes to technology, right? Yeah. Um, and we, as a society, do not give up all of our expectation of privacy in a public or semi-public space. I think we can agree to that as, mm -hmm. as citizens, right? Mm -hmm. When we go outside, we're not expecting someone to be doing those things. Now, the context as a woman that was brought up to me, uh, and probably you know, for anyone else who really knows about voyeurism cases, is uh, the context of upskirting, right? Mm -hmm. Which is when... There, in many cases, men are uh, taking videos or pictures up women's skirts. Right. And this is happening in public, like on the bus or at the park or, you know, in some cases at school. And that is found to be wrong because it's it's clearly demeaning and it's for a sexual nature. Now, if we're looking at the Court of Appeals comments, the, the rationale in this case, it was really interesting to read that and go, well, there's obviously a different context, in my opinion, between recording for the purposes of surveillance and safety as as the stated purpose versus a teacher with a hidden camera in his pen and he's looking down at, at his students breasts which by the way again and i cannot stress this enough they were between the ages of 14 and 18 years old so they were not consenting adults to this transaction if you can call it that uh, the second thing that happened at the court of appeal was a little bit shocking as well these are the kinds of questions that were asked. And this is, again, this happened in 2015, and mm -hmm. the Court of Appeal happened after that. Questions like, what was she wearing? Where was she? Why didn't she cover up? 
And hearing those questions, it sets you back because we we thought that we had addressed these these things. We thought that with you know cases that have come out from the Supreme Court of Canada, especially when they've admonished rape myths, right, and, mm-hmm. and sexism, that questions like this shouldn't be asked in yeah. 2015 and beyond, right? Even, I think even the framework of those questions, you're you're pointing the questions at the victim. Yeah, so it's victim blaming, right? Right. And at the court of appeal. This should not be question. These are not questions that should be asked. Is is the opinion of me and and a lot of people. I mean, that's just how the law works. The court of appeal they look at the statutes and like statutory yeah. interpretation and stuff like that. So this is kind of going against the grain, I would say, and setting us backwards. Yes, and now so like one one I guess framework for analysis is that mm-hmm. well they're considering it in the modern context of modern technology. Okay, fine, no problem. I think it's important to interpret statutes as they fit the context, no problem there. But these comments effectively set us back. So what happened was, is LEAF intervened, and they were asking the courts to not allow the new era of digitalized sexual violence to bring back the old era of sexism and rape myths. They're saying, don't let this new context set us back 30 years Mm -hmm. and make us start from scratch and have to prove these things in the context of video recording or voyeurism. We've already established these things. I mean, the organization and, and, you know, countless lawyers have dedicated so much of their life's work to bring these cases forward and to get them to this level of recognition so they set precedent going forward. To have to restart that in the context of technology and voyeurism seemed counterproductive to them. Absolutely. So, you know, we can agree that technology is a a very powerful tool in the modern context. Right. And so we should be very vigilant when it comes to privacy in the context of sexual violence, right? So the things that, if we're talking personally, what it brought to mind for me, um, we can talk about things like recording people in public. That That's another example, like forget being in school, but also sending nudes, right? Sending mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. on Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sending, you know, very vulnerable private information to people that you trust and then them manipulating it. We have had, you know, cases where um, exes have threatened to leak people's uh, sensitive material uh, after a breakup. And this is what we're dealing with in the modern context, right? Right. So cases like this are really important. And the SCC, as I mentioned before, they did find this to be a case of voyeurism. And they did say that, one, that there was, most importantly, that there was a reasonable expectation of privacy for those girls in their school. Mm -hmm. And two, that the videotapings were made for a sexual purpose. So they did say that he was guilty of voyeurism. And what this decision tells us is that technology will not eliminate our fundamental rights. And I think that's really cool that, you know, February 2019, fine, but the SEC has ruled that and it's a it's a precedent setting case so it's really interesting over the next little while how the 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 law will develop as a result of this outcome but it's such an important case yeah they have they finally came across having a a pillar or a backbone of some sort this is the first time it's been uh, referred to uh voyeurism at at the level of the scc in this context Mm -hmm. so where nadi where does this take us then in terms of the the social sphere of voyeurism and you know technology where do you see uh, future cases coming forth. Like, obviously, we have precedent now, but um, how do we 
stop this from happening? And is, is there ways to mitigate these, these circumstances in the future? So people who want to record you without their consent should probably not record you without your consent. Basis, at the very basis, I the very, totally agree with at you the on that one. very minimum, mm-hmm. don't record people without their consent. Yes. Um, especially when it comes to things that could be construed as to be sexual in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people hearing this case will think twice before they do that. Um, the other thing I should mention with this case is, and it was a bit troubling reading it, is that there was a position of power. There was a power imbalance. This is a teacher, and these are his students, and again, Such they're a minors. Bizarre, it is, to be a, but it's frank. but it's not unusual. If you're looking at sexual uh, harassment, sexual assault, power. We've said this before. Power is the root of that. Mm-hmm. Sexual assault is not about sex. It's about power. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to voyeurism, you can say the same thing. It's not about sex. It's about power. It's about manipulation or getting a thrill from doing that. Right. Now, we as a society have recognized it's wrong, and we've you know gone as far as to codify it. And I think that, for one, I think this decision will make people think twice. Um, and I think it'll, it'll give victims of you know, voyeurism, something to stand on, right? Something to back them if they bring these cases forward because the, now that Supreme Court of Canada has ruled on it and they have something to go on. Um, so this gives victims uh, a bit of power when it comes to bringing forth these claims. And I think that's really important given that there this wasn't there before. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing this insight and bringing this case up to light. I think it's really important to raise awareness not only about the cause of the issues, but just to understand um, consent in a different light, especially voyeurism. And unfortunately, the circumstances were a bit grim, given that this was this involved a teacher, an educator yeah. who you put a lot of trust into. Mm-hmm. You send your children to, um, you know, be protected and be under a good faith uh, agreement to be under good care and duty of care and all those sorts of legal jargons that we heard. But <laughs> to simplify it short, like you, you you don't expect this to happen. No, and, and, and that's the thing. You never expect it to happen uh, to you or someone yeah. you know. And But this is why um, as lawyers or as, you know, people in the legal profession or yeah. as judges or whatever role we play, um, as advocates even, is to protect those at risk for manipulation or those who are vulnerable to to something like this. Um, And we have to be vigilant Mm -hmm. and we have to be adaptive. And I think that uh, that this is is something that we can make a difference if we we apply our minds to it. Um, So yeah, we have an important role to play. And I think that the work LEAF does is amazing. I really admire the work they do. I'm so glad to be working with such a fantastic organization and pro bono students can in general. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the direction things seem to be going in. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you coming in the studio and sharing your insight and teaching us a little bit more about everything that you do. So all the best to you and finishing strong, and uh, I will see you soon. Thank you. At Formal, because Formal will be coming up very shortly. Yeah. Let's have some fun. Thanks again, Nadia.